I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 21 this evening. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, we acknowledge that it is by sovereign grace alone that we are given eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that desire to sing praises unto your name. We pray that each evening when we gather on these Sundays that our hearts and minds would be attentive and submissive to your word that we would look to the Holy Spirit to help us, to grow us, and to mature us in the knowledge of the work of our Savior, that we would marvel the wonder of his work upon the cross, that even as we think about these shadows of the Old Testament and how they point us ahead to the fulfillment of Christ, that we would have new eyes to see, hearts that are stirred in greater zeal to walk in holiness of life because of your amazing wonderful redemption. And it's in the name of Christ and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of our God, you may be seated. Well, we go from looking at one verse at a time in our study through the Ten Commandments to really picking up some steam together tonight as we look at four verses this evening. Now, for many reasons, I think this is a wonderfully remarkable portion of Scripture. The Lord descends upon Mount Sinai in this awesome display of power, holiness, and righteousness His voice is likened to a trumpet sound with building crescendo as he comes to speak to his people in audible voice for all of them to hear. He affirms his covenant love to them by referring to them as his treasured possession and holy nation. He reminds them of what he has done for them to save them, and then he proceeds to give to them the Decalogue the Ten Commandments, which helps them understand how they are to respond to God's salvation, namely in loving God and loving their neighbor. And then after the giving of the law, we read here tonight about the effect that the Lord's revelation has upon them, the effect of the law given to the people. And so as we look at our text, let's think first tonight about this manifestation of God's power. This is our first point this evening, the display of God's power as we see it in verse 18. Now, you might remember, though, I was looking at my calendar and it's been almost 11 months since we were in chapter 19. But back in chapter 19, the Lord told Moses that the people should prepare for his coming upon Mount Sinai. And so, for three days, the people were to get themselves ready, washing their garments consecrating themselves by preparing mind and heart to receive the word of the Lord and refraining from daily routine tasks. 
There was a barrier, you might recall, that was placed around the base of the mountain to keep people and animals from encroaching upon that holy space lest they die. And then after all of these preparations, after all of this buildup, as it were, all of this expectation, the Lord comes in this majestic display of power and righteousness and holiness. And the people cannot help but respond in fear and wondering. Just look up there to chapter 19, verse 16. Notice what we read. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. And then in our text here in verse 18, we read something virtually identical. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And so notice that between these two descriptions of the Lord's manifestation of his presence, it is the law that comes. The law is bracketed by this majestic display of power and holiness. And so even before God's law comes in chapter 19, the people are filled with terror. How much more in chapter 20 after he gives the law? And I think what we are to picture here is that these sights and sounds of the Lord's visible presence are continuing the entire time that the Ten Commandments, the law of the Lord, is given to his people. All of the senses you see are being engaged in this spiritual awakening to help them understand both the holiness of the Lord and the defilement of their own hearts. You probably have that experience living here in central Florida of being caught off guard with a nearby bolt of lightning so close that you don't even have time to react before the sound of thunder that follows. And it can be deafening to your ears and really get your heart racing as you run for cover. And just think, if natural thunder creates such a response, imagine how much more the voice of the Lord as he appears in majesty speaking this word of truth. John Calvin asked the question, why does the Lord come in this manner with thunder and lightning? He answers that the doctrine that is the giving of the law might possess more majesty, that men might be led to humble themselves before God in complete reverence, that they might fully yield themselves to his word and obey. Maybe you've talked to people before who claim that as far as they're concerned, God doesn't exist. And if God really wanted that person to believe in him, then he would just manifest himself, appear to them in some way, showing his power. Philip Ryken responds, people who make such demands really have no idea what they're asking. Because anyone who has ever caught even the slightest glimpse of God's true glory has been filled with fear. He is an awesome an all-powerful God whose holiness is a terror to sinners. And this, of course, is seen in the response of the children of Israel, which leads us to the second thing that we see from our text tonight, the response of the Israelites. Now, notice that their response involves two things. It involves actions and it involves words. So we'll look at each of those in turn. First, we read of their actions there in verse 18. There is fear, there is trembling, there is moving away from the Lord. Now, how are we to understand this response? Why is there this reaction after the giving of the law of the Lord? Don't the children of Israel have much to be thankful for? Can't they reflect back and 
and recall the mercy and kindness of the Lord as they think about the evidence of God's goodness to them from the plagues poured out upon Egypt to the deliverance and the crossing of the Red Sea and the decimation of the Egyptian army to the provision of manna each day from heaven to the turning of the bitter water into drinkable and water coming from the rock. Clear evidence over and again of God's favor and kindness. So why this reaction? Why this response of fear and trembling and standing far off? Well, they're learning something extremely important that we'll come back to you more later. And that is that the law by itself cannot save. And not just anyone can presume to come into the presence of the Holy One. Back in chapter 19, again, God sets limits around the base of the mountain, those boundaries warning the people not to come any closer lest they be killed. But given the response of the people here in chapter 20, it seems like those precautions weren't even needed. One commentator that I read put it like this. By the time the Lord was finished giving his law, those precautions hardly seemed necessary. The people were trembling with fear. They were shaking, shaking in their sandals well behind those safety perimeters as they stood at a distance. But again, I think it's worth asking, why were they so afraid? What was it exactly that they feared that led to this particular type of response? And was it an appropriate response on their part? Now, undoubtedly, part of their fear was encountering the living God in a manner that had never happened to them before. And yes, they had seen God's power In Egypt, they had seen his power on the way to Mount Sinai. But perhaps prior to this, there was the presumption on the part of some, just as there's the presumption on the part of many in our own time when it comes to the nature of God. Perhaps they conceived of God as a powerful deity, but maybe just a notch or two above the pantheon of gods in Egypt. Powerful enough to overthrow them, but no real conception about how powerful he truly is. But now being struck with the majesty of the Lord... They have just a glimpse, as it were, of that holiness, righteousness, and splendor. Their minds and hearts are overwhelmed, and they cannot help but respond in fear and trembling and backing away. We see a similar response in the New Testament. You'll remember when Jesus is with his disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. He's sleeping on the cushion in the stern of the, of the boat, and the storm comes and rages around them. Uh, the waves crash against the side of the boat, the wind is howling, the disciples make that wonderfully um, preposterous accusation against him. Don't you care, Lord, that we are about to die? And Jesus merely speaks and calms the wind and the waves. And we read that the disciples are filled with a greater fear. Fear of waves was one thing, but fear in the presence of the Holy One is quite another. Being struck with the power of God is a good thing. It reminds us of our proper place. It helps to keep us humble. It serves to calm the restlessness and impatience of our own hearts that can lead us to make inappropriate demands of the Lord. And so part of this fear, I think, can be explained as simply having an encounter with the living God. But given the fact that their fear remains after the giving of the law might show us that part of their fear is related to the law itself. As they hear the demands of the law, as they consider the extent of the application of God's law to their lives, 
they come to realize that the Lord is calling for wholehearted, absolute allegiance at every point of life. They are struck with the demands of the law to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They are struck with the demands to love one another with words and deeds and motives. They understand now in the giving of the law that God is calling for perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. And they were terrified, frightened by the demands of the law as it revealed those imperfections and adequacies and defilements of their own heart. How can they stand before such a God? This is the just judge of all of mankind. And we are all guilty before the Holy One. And so this visible manifestation, along with the words of the law, work together to show that they are guilty sinners. They work together to show us that we are guilty sinners. And this is merely a glimpse of what will occur on that final day of judgment. Just listen to some of these sobering words from our larger catechism. This is question and answer 29. What are the punishments of sin in the world to come? The punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. And question and answer 89. What shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand, and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them, and thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all his holy angels into hell to be punished with unspeakable torments, both of body and soul with the devil and his angels forever. So what does all of this teach us? Well, this teaches us that our God is not a God to be trifled with. But the problem, you see, is not with the law. The law is good. The law is righteous. The law is true and just and holy. But the problem is with us, lawbreakers. And a day of judgment is coming. The righteous and holy God of creation who sees all, who knows all, who is fully aware of the wickedness of our own hearts, this is the God before whom we all must stand. And this is the God who will judge all of humanity according to the standard of his law on that final day. And by ourselves, we are undone. And the law cannot save. John Murray writes, Law can do nothing to justify the person who has violated the sanctity of that law, and it has come under its curse. Law as law has no expiatory provision. Law as law, in other words, has no ability to remove guilt and defilement. Murray goes on, it exercises no forgiving grace. It has no power of enablement to the fulfillment of its own demand. It knows no clemency for the remission of guilt. It provides no righteousness to meet our iniquity. It exerts no constraining power to reclaim our waywardness. It knows no mercy to melt our hearts in penitence and new obedience. It can do nothing to relieve the bondage of sin, but rather the law merely accentuates and confirms our bondage. And so this explains why there is fear. 
why there is trembling and why there is backing away from the Lord. But there's more in the response of the people. It's not just fear, trembling, pulling away from the mountain of Sinai, but notice what they say to Moses in verse 19. You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Well, what are they asking for here? They're asking for nothing less than a mediator, an intercessor, someone to stand between them and God. As you know, part of the job of the mediator is to be an advocate, a defense attorney, we might say, to speak on behalf of another. And perhaps you've had that experience yourself of serving on jury duty. And you know, it's a lot different than those crime dramas that you watch on television or those courtroom dramas, rather. And when you sit there and you see all of the complexities of the law, you know that that one who is being charged needs a person who understands the proper procedures and protocols. And he needs someone who understands the law and who can speak on his behalf in an articulate and professional manner. And of course, you would prefer someone who's experienced. A recent graduate of law school who's just sort of fumbling around doesn't instill a lot of confidence. And I think it's interesting that There will be a time in the days ahead when the children of Israel will question the leadership of Moses, where they will even seek to overthrow him and lead the people back to Egypt, but not here, not now. Maybe they're not even considering the qualifications of Moses at this point. They just want someone else to speak to God instead of hearing from God directly, someone else to stand between them lest they die. They do not want to deal with God directly. They are afraid to deal with God directly. They could not deal with God directly. But another question of the text, I think, is just this. Is it right for them to make this request? Is it right for them to ask Moses to go on their behalf? Well, it's helpful, I think, at this point for us to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you'll turn there with me. Deuteronomy 5 is... Moses reiterating not only the law, but all that has happened over the last generation as that second generation of Israel prepares to enter into the land of promise. Warnings to them, lest they repeat the same pattern as their fathers. And in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 5, verse 22, notice what we read here. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say. And speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. 
And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to me. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And so notice what we read here, that it was actually good and right for the people to ask for a mediator. They heard the commands of the Lord. They see the glory and the holiness of God and their hearts are exposed, perhaps coming to a greater awareness of their sin and defilement than they had ever had before. And it is just too much for them to bear. And so they need a mediator. And it is actually right for them to ask for such. They need someone to stand between them and God, lest they be consumed, lest they be destroyed. And verse 19 tells us that their initial response, notice, is you speak to us, not God. Now later, they'll understand that this role of mediator is much fuller than this. That as we work our way through the book of Exodus, we'll see that not only do they need someone to speak on behalf of God to them, but they need someone to speak on their behalf to the Lord. They cannot come into his presence because of his holiness, nor can they have him come to them because of his justice and righteousness. And so what they really need, though they may not quite realize it yet, is they need someone who is both holy and who bears the wrath of God in their place. Someone to protect them from the deserved wrath of God and someone to take the curse that they deserve to fall upon them as lawbreakers. And since this is a good and a right request on behalf of the people, the Lord does not leave them without that provision of a mediator. But of course, Moses fulfills that role. And there is a word of hope that comes from this God-appointed mediator in Moses. And that brings us to the third thing that we see in this narrative And that is the response of the mediator, the response of Moses. Now, just as the response of the people was twofold, actions and words, we see in Moses that it is a twofold response, words proclaimed and actions that follow. Look first at the words of Moses in verse 20. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. We heard the same thing back in Deuteronomy 5. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, the Lord says, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And so notice in these words that the mediator Moses offers to the people, there is both comfort and instruction. Do not fear. This is part of the Lord's doing to test you to reveal your heart, to stir within you in awe and wonder before him that it would lead toward obedience. Do not fear, and yet fear him. Fear him that you may not sin. And we know this important nuance between fear in our study of Scripture. Fear in terms of terror is not sufficient for the covenantal relationship that the Lord desires to have with his people. An abject fear, we might call it, a terror of God will merely keep you away from him. It's a type of fear that one might have, they might reason to themselves, if I just stay away, then I cannot offend him. 
You might think of an employee who is sort of on thin ice with his boss, and he reasons to himself that every time the boss is around, he'll just go out and make sales calls. Maybe if he can just sort of stay beneath the radar, he'll have some job security. But of course, there's no real relationship between employer and employee and something like that. If the only response of the people was to back away, was to stay as far away from God as they could, well, what sort of relationship would that be? If God were merely about instilling this type of abject fear, if it was all just about him displaying wrath, if all he wanted to do was destroy the people of Israel, he would have done so already. They're already guilty. They've inherited their sin from Adam. And they have added their own transgressions to that and their idolatry that they were a part of when they lived in the land of Egypt. And so the fact that they're even standing here at the base of Mount Sinai, being spared of judgment, is an indication that the Lord desires to save them, that they might respond in joy-filled obedience. But in contrast, you see, to that abject fear is an appropriate fear of the Lord, a fear that is, of course, flows from reverence and awe and wonder, that is meant to stir the heart toward watchfulness, obedience, and love toward the Lord. I love the simple reading that we find in Psalm 130, verse 4. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared. This is the type of fear that we should cultivate in our own hearts. Wonder that we are forgiven of all of our sins in the Lord Jesus. Love toward our tender Father in heaven who has sent his only Son to die for us. An amazement that we are known by the living God, dearly loved as his treasured possession. Biblical fear is really a loving response to his grace in which we desire to walk in humble obedience before him. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about it? Biblical fear is a loving response to his grace in which we desire to walk in humble obedience before him. Left to themselves, Israel would just gravitate toward the first of those two responses by just pulling away. So they need the mediator to instruct them. They need him to teach them differently that they might know how to live before the face of God. But it's not just the words of Moses that ought to bring to them comfort and instruction. But notice also his actions, the actions of the mediator in verse 21. Notice that while the people stand far off, Moses draws near into the intimate presence of the living God, venturing into the mysterious darkness, the cloud that has descended upon Sinai a place where only the mediator can go. And so Moses fulfills this mediatorial role by hearing from the Lord God and then taking the word of the Lord to the people. Well, at the same time as we progress, again, we'll see throughout the book that he ascends the mountain of the Lord on behalf of the children of Israel. Again, from Deuteronomy 5, Moses says, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. But we might wonder, what about Moses? 
Why does he seem to be so confident? Why does he not seem to fear the holiness of the Lord God? Is it just because he's had a relationship with the Lord longer than the children of Israel have? And given enough time, will be able to enter into the presence of the Lord with such confidence? Well, actually, Moses was filled with fear as well. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, the text that Adam read from earlier in our call to worship. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses trembled as well because he too saw the disparity between the holiness of God and the defilement of his own heart. Moses was not the all-sufficient mediator that the people needed because he too needed someone to take the wrath of God that he might not be consumed. He needed the shed blood of another. He needed the substitutionary work of Christ Jesus in order to enter into the holy, righteous presence of the living God and not be destroyed. And it is Jesus who is the better mediator. Jesus is the greater than Moses, our final and all-sufficient mediator, our perfect advocate. He goes to God on our behalf taking our prayers and all of our cries for his help. And he comes ministering tenderly to us on behalf of the Holy One. He alone is capable as one who is fully God and fully man. Moses himself was just another lawbreaker in need of atonement for himself. But Jesus is our perfectly obedient representative. He is the one who has hushed the law's loud thunder. Jesus is the one who has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. His perfect obedience to the law at every point is for those who trust in him, those who receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. And so trust in him. Trust in him, people of God, for a day of judgment is coming. And without this advocate, you stand alone, not only ill-equipped, but utterly undone. And now, because of our Savior, we come, again, as the writer of Hebrews says, we come not to Mount Sinai, where the tempest swarmed, but to Mount Zion, the place where atonement was secured. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 3, God has done what the law could not do. As you read throughout the book of Hebrews, you come to this refrain over and over again. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as God's people, we have come to know this truth experientially, haven't we? We come to this place, when we walk into this place to worship the Lord, we don't come in terror, but with joy, knowing that we will hear promises and words of comfort from the word of the Lord, knowing that we can lift together our hearts in prayer and our voices in song to praise our God. We don't come here fearing for our life, but from the beginning of our worship service to the very end. From the call to worship to the benediction, it is a word of grace and mercy to you that calls you 
into that most intimate and loving presence of the Lord. We come with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so lean upon Jesus and never tire of doing so. This is a text that is meant to awaken us to the reality of that final day. A day of judgment is coming. A day in which all things will be set right. A day in which all wickedness will be destroyed while those who trust in Christ alone, looking to Him as your advocate and your mediator, will stand vindicated. And now, in the present, because of what Christ has done for us, our relationship to the law is transformed, and we love the law of the Lord. We desire to know it more, that we might walk in obedience out of gratitude for the wonder of our salvation. As we close here again from, here again from Calvin, Calvin asks, will we love him? Will we receive what he says in his word without contradicting it, saying amen, not simply with our lips, but with our heart, serving him the remainder of our lives? May that be true of each and every one of us for God's glory. Amen.